Christ commanded us to preach the gospel and disciple the nations. All we do is in support of that mission statement. Join us as we strive to fight the good fight of faith together. Welcome to the Warriors Rising. Hey, this is Paul with Warriors Rising. Glad to have you on the team. Glad to have you in the fight. We unfortunately will not be having Tiana with us today. She's chilling at the house on a sabbatical, just taking a time of refreshing with her family. So be lifting her up in your prayers, please, that God just refreshes her, that she enjoys that time with him, her family, to be built up so that she is prepped and ready to move out on everything that God has her doing, which is quite a bit. Definitely miss her when she's not here. She is an asset to this podcast. She brings a lot of wisdom and insight that I greatly appreciate. But today we're going to be talking about Jonah. When we look at the book of Jonah, this little four chapter book, there are so many insights and so many lessons to be learned. But that shouldn't surprise us that a little four chapter book can do this because it's the God of the universe, which inspired the very words that are in it. A couple of preliminaries as we begin, obviously Acts 17.11, this is your challenge. If you're listening to this, guess what? This is on you. Paul had gone from Thessalonica to Berea. He presented them the gospel. They took the gospel that Paul, the apostle, presented and tested it against the scriptures, and they are commended for it. It says in Acts 17, 11, that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scripture daily, whether those things were so. So your job, have an open mind, have a readiness of mind to learn, to gather the information, but then take it and test it against the scripture. Everything I say, everything everybody else says, you take it and you test it against the text. We should not be going to the text just to try to give support for our presuppositional theologies. No, we need to say, what has God said? And then from that, we draw out our theology. And as always, 1 Thessalonians 5, test all things, hold fast, to that which is good. Now, also in the preliminaries, we have to remember some lenses of views. One, we recognize that these are real people. These are real narratives. <clears throat> these things did occur. But Paul in Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. So these are here for us to learn. Then John 5.39, Jesus says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1-4, through that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures at that time were the Old Testament. So as we listen, as we read the book of Jonah, understand that everything is here for our learning, for our instruction, that we may know and serve God better so that we can know our history. Because as believers who serve the promised seed of Abraham, this is in a sense, our spiritual heritage. No, we are not Israel, right? We are not the true Jews as Christians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. That middle wall of partition is taken down. But the first verse I read there, there's neither Jew nor Greek, that is Galatians 3.28. And then the middle wall of partition being taken down and us being brought near, that is Ephesians. So we have to remember 
that this is us. This is for us. It is not about us necessarily, but it is for us. Now we need to understand the historical setting. There were two kingdoms at this time during the time of Jonah, the Northern kingdom of Israel and the Southern kingdom of Judah. Now the Northern kingdom, it started off poorly and basically continued down a path of idolatry and rebellion against Yahweh. Now, when this division initially occurred, we read in 1 Kings 11, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now, one of the things that we see when this occurs is that Jeroboam, who God basically had given the 10 tribes to, because there wasn't 10 lost tribes, there was a division where the tribe of David would be, given, and the Southern kingdom would have one, well, one tribe on top of Judah. The other tribes would be given to the North. Jeroboam had the possibility that his lineage could have been established. But what did he do? He basically said, screw it. I'm going to put these two calves up here because I don't want people going south and then giving their allegiance to the southern kingdom and back to the line of David. But so by the time Jonah is around, there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And during Jonah's time, it was during the time of Jeroboam II, and he was the most powerful king of the northern kingdom. Outside of the book of Jonah, we see Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings 14. It said, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So what had happened that Assyria had established a lot, most a major supremacy within the Near East and secured tribute from King Jehu. However, after crushing the Arameans, the Syrians had a lot of internal strife going on within the kingdom and dissensions, which caused temporary decline of the nation. Now, when Jeroboam saw this, he used this as to his advantage to expand the nation's territory to the largest extent since the time of David and Solomon. It was had not been that large since. And so that is the general setting historically for the book of Jonah. However, as we saw, what does it say about Jeroboam? That he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That was a consistent thing of the Northern Kingdom. All the kings pretty much were bad, right? They go bad to worse. Now, on a prophetic profile, we also need to understand that along with Jonah, he most likely was a contemporary with Amos and with Hosea. Now, both of these were sent to the northern kingdom to prophesy about impending judgment. But due to lack of Israel's due to the lack of Israel's repentance, the nation was going to fall under God's chosen instrument of judgment, which was the Assyrians. Amos warned that the God of Israel would send 
them into exile beyond Damascus in Amos 5.27. And so Hosea specifically stated that will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent. That is something that I think we as Americans, as Christians need to think about. If they refuse to repent. One of the things that you see in the book of Revelation after judgment and judgment and more judgment and intensification of judgment it talks about how they they still did not repent. There was this lack of repentance, a lack of turning from the things which God hates. But I think that we as Christians, many times we can say, hey, I know I'm supposed to be doing something different. I know I should maybe not be doing something or I should be doing something. And yet we we don't repent. We don't turn from it. We don't do the things that we should do. And we do the things that we shouldn't do. So this is the profile that... Jonah is walking into. And the reason that I say, and I bring up Amos and Hosea, is I want to set up a context for the book of Jonah. If he is aware, which he prob- it's possible that he was aware of the prophecies of Hosea and Amos. So now you have an understanding that there, the Assyrians are going to bring judgment upon your land and upon your people. You are then asked to go call that nation that's going to bring judgment on your own people to repentance. So this is a very, very interesting predicament that Jonah would probably find himself in if he's aware of these prophecies, which it's very possible that he was. And it gives us an understanding of why he may have run away. There are a couple of themes within this book. One is going to be God's control over events to bring about Nineveh's repentance. We're going to see this in chapters one, two, and four. We see God's mercy on those who turn to him this should echo Isaiah 45, 22 in our, in our minds. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, while Jonah is called a prophet to the Gentiles, specifically Nineveh, we see this in chapter one and three, the rest of the Old Testament audience is the nation of Israel. Now, throughout the entirety of the book, there's a consistency of the reaction that you're going to see. And I want you to be aware of this as we go through these passages. There's a consistency of reaction by pagan, idol-worshiping Gentiles compared to Jonah and Israel. So while the comparison isn't directly stated within the pages and within the book, we can infer it through what goes on thematically and throughout the narrative. So you have a pagan city who repents on a proposed and pending judgment of an unknown prophet and receive God's mercy. Israel, on the other hand, were God's chosen people. They saw his blessings. They saw his miracles. God sent them prophets. He sent them the Messiah, and yet they still rebelled. The book of Jonah is an indictment against the nation. But even though it is an indictment, we ha- can't forget that we, even though it is an indictment, We cannot overlook that God continuously sought the heart of Israel in every way possible to draw them back into obedience and back into relationship with him. We see this in Romans 10, 21, where salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. So in a sense, this is a way of God calling Israel. He sent a prophet to their their enemies to call them to repentance. And on their repentance, God forgave and withheld judgment. So they're saying, look, I forgave. I withheld judgment. They're repenting. You need to do the same. 
So moving in, we're starting the first chapter, the call of Jonah and his disobedience. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, when we look at Tarshish historically, one of the things that we actually uh, find out as you go through the maps and the histories is that it's probably one of the farthest places you could get to. It's about a year's journey from Joppa. And there's evidence that Tarshish was actually Great Britain and that region. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Now understand, uh, back then during that time, if you had cargo on your ship and you had to dump it, you were responsible for replacing it, for paying for it. So this is not a small thing that is going on here. They have an understanding that this is a massive storm. And if they don't do this, they're probably going to die. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what's interesting is that he says, I fear the Lord God of heaven, but I can't help but in my mind think, well, in speech, he fears the Lord God, but does he really? Does he truly fear the Lord God? Because if he did, he would be walking in obedience to him. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So a couple things that have gone on here. Back in verse six, you have the pagan captain calling on Jonah to pray. Verse nine, Jonah says that he fears the Lord, but his actions speak very differently. Now, the pagan sailors, not Jonah, the pagan sailors grasped the seriousness of what Jonah had done better than he did. First, and that's verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. So as you see, God is in control. He's not going to let them get back to shore to give Jonah another opportunity to run away. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, notice the pagan sailors have compassion towards Jonah versus his apathy towards them and Nineveh. And they're saying, look, we're going to throw this guy into the ocean. They have an understanding that under these conditions, this guy's going to most likely die. And they're saying, do not hold 
his blood against us. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. I really cannot imagine what this must have been like for these professional seafarers. Insane storm. They realize they're probably going to die if something doesn't change. And then instantly the sea goes calm. And they're so amazed by this that they offer sacrifices and praise to the Lord and they made vows to him. So the good news, right? God can redeem anything. (laughs) These sailors seem to convert and worship Yahweh. So again, notice the contrast. Jonah is in disobedience to God. Pagan sailors turn to Yahweh, make vows and praise him. There's an inscription in the cathedral in Lübeck, Germany, as we're going through this. And I think it speaks very, very, very convicting words. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. And notice Jonah says, I fear the Lord, but in action, so often we can pay lip service to the Lord. We see this in Hosea. They're following what God wants. There are in Amos, they're doing the stuff, but what does the Lord say? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. We see a similar statement made by the Lord in Isaiah, because ultimately it is about the heart, and out of that should flow obedience. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the end of chapter one. Now, obviously, this brings up the question, how did Jonah survive three days and three nights in the fish? Well, this isn't something we have to try and defend because the simple answer is he didn't. Jonah didn't survive. We see this in his prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly and said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Before you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. So here we see that it says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is the abode of the dead. We see this in Luke 16, where we see the parable or the story of rich man and Lazarus. I consider this an actual account because parables do not have names. Let's look at this passage in Luke 16 regarding Sheol and what Jesus has to say, because we learn details about Sheol that we don't find anywhere else within the text. There's a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. This is an interesting detail. We learn that it seems angels are joined with our souls in transporting us to paradise or to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, and that's the Greek word for Sheol, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Notice he is conscious. He is aware he is in torment, but he never states that what he is enduring is unjust. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now, this is not saying that, hey, because he was rich, he went to Sheol and he went, well, went to the the suffering side of Sheol. What this is remembering from a first century Jewish perspective, they believe those that were blessed, those that were blessed in life were following God because God blessed them. And so that was a sign that they were following the Lord. We could say, but if you were to apply that today, you could say that the Mormons have it right because they're the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest churches on the earth. When you actually look at the number of assets that they own. So this is speaking against the Pharisaic, the rabbinic traditions of first century Judaism, that if you're rich, you're blessed, and therefore you are blessed by God and he you are following him. That's not the case here. What it's saying, hey, you you are you were blessed in life, but you did not honor and follow Yahweh. If he had that would have been displayed through his actions of taking care of the poor, like Lazarus. So the man was not a follower of Yahweh. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So there is, in Sheol, two sides, Abraham's bosom, and then a side of torment. And there's this giant chasm that cannot be crossed. Now, we'll get into a bit later that I believe that this is at the center of the earth. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So, Again, he is conscious, he's aware, he's in torment. He understands what he is enduring is justified. He has memory of his family. He knows what they need to do in order to not have to endure his fate and join him. But Moses says, even if one rises from the dead and tells them the truth, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to that guy. And this is actually, this occurs because we learn as you study the gospels that even though Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, guess what? The Pharisees planned to kill him because it gave evidence that he that what he was saying was true. So think of how hardened that their hearts had to be, that even though Jesus rose somebody from the dead. And now the reason that is so vital and important to understand is because Jesus waited more than three days to do it. The tradition was that the soul remains around the body for three days and then goes to Sheol or to paradise. Everything that Jesus is doing is either fulfilling or going, fulfill their traditions and that break their models. Because basically, if the soul is not around the body, it's already gone to paradise. Only God could resurrect them. 
that is why this is so vital to understand what's really going on within these passages and understanding the first century Jewish mindset. I, I would highly recommend a book called Yeshua, The Life of the Messiah from a Messianic Jewish Perspective by jo Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. No, Jonah says, out of Sheol, I cried. So he goes through this process, but he says, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. I believe that this is him saying, hey, I look forward to the day at the resurrection, in the resurrection, I will look towards your holy temple. We see similar language with Job. He says, though my flesh is consumed, yet with my eyes will I, yet in my flesh will I see God. So most likely Jonah died here. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. As you go through a study, he's down at the base of the mountains. Now we get another insight about Sheol in number 16 with the rebellion of Korah. Korah and a whole band speak against Moses. They said in Number 16, verse three, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, obviously Moses did not do this. Aaron did not do this. God had raised Moses up as the leader. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him that one whom he chooses will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that God, God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and serve them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Pitfalls. God has given us a mission. He's given us a ministry. He's given us blessing. And we're looking at it, the other stuff, the stuff that other people are doing and saying, I should do that. You know, there's this uh, one church model that I love by Vision USA. It's a church planting model that they use when they're running their churches. They do a lot of underground churches in countries where it's illegal to have a church. They're out of Ohio and they have a GSC model, gatherer, shepherd, and elder. The gatherers gather people. The shepherds, obviously they're teaching. And then you have an elder that's kind of a, in a position of overseeing um, accountability. But the gatherers and everybody, all of us know gatherers. When you actually sit and think about people within our circles of influence and our friends, friends, there's those personalities. They can just bring people in when there's an event, when there's a movement, whatever. They just gather them and bring them in. Well, under the GSE model, GSE model, sometimes the gatherers want to become shepherds. Well, what happens when the gatherers become shepherds? Growth stops because the they stop gathering. They're, they they stop moving in the thing that they're they're gifted in because they want that shepherd position. They want to be in that position of teaching. And stuff just slows down. Stuff stops. You know, we all have a part to play. Every everybody's a part of the body. And when we do not function properly in our role, and we want to be doing something else that somebody else is doing, just because I want to, it it can screw so many things up. Not just for us, but there's ramifications for the rest of the body. But here, Cora and them were jealous basically. So Moses does this whole thing. He says, bring the censors. Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. 
Then Moses was very angry and said, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take a censer and put incense in it. And each of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both of you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense in it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Datham and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men, touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from all around the tents of Korah. Datham and Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all the men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive to the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they all, so they and all those who were uh, with them went down alive into the pit. And that pit, that word is again, Sheol. As you do a study of this throughout the text of scripture, Old and New Testament, we learn Sheol is at the center of the earth. That is a crazy thing to think about, but it's what the text seems to say. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So notice he's not really saying much other than, hey, 40 days and you get yours. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way 
And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. One of the things that I think is very interesting, initially, Jonah is told to cry against the nation, cry against it. But then he's told to go and preach to it in chapter three. What do the people do upon this? They proclaim a fast and they cover themselves in sackcloth. This is an outward symbol of an inward contrition and humbling of themselves. And they fasted. One of the things that we also need to understand, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites because who was one of their main gods? It was Dagon, the fish god. So we have this weird little prophet that gets spit up onto the land. Now, whether they saw that or not, we don't know. However, this prophet came, he gives a very, very basic message and notice the reaction. The king and the people repented on speculation, given a message. For, uh, they did this due to a message given by an unknown man. Contrast that to the nation of Israel who claimed to be God's people, who were God's chosen people, and they ignored the prophets. They killed them. They didn't repent. Nineveh was a stranger to this prophet. They were a stranger to Yahweh, and they did repent. And what is the result? God's mercy. God relented. You know, one of the miracles that I think is often overlooked is the fact that Nineveh repented. You've got this storm. You've got the fish. You've got the worm. You've got the east wind. But one of the most major miracles within this book is the fact that the city of Nineveh repented and turned to Yahweh, that along with the sailors. Now, here's what's so interesting. Jonah's reaction, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? So notice, this is an insight that we are not given initially. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew if they repented, God would relent from his judgment. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. You know, as we study the scriptures, it almost seems like God allows things to get so bad that it's like, I, I, it's, it's time for judgment. It's time for judgment. There is no more opportunity because he's slow to anger. He relents from doing harm. He desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God had prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry with the plant about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. The, the chutzpah, really the balls on some of these people in the way they speak to the God of the universe, it kind of blows my mind. We see similar language and similar talk with Moses. 
it, it, some of the complaints that Moses has, it's like, did I birth these people? You know, it, it just, it cracks me up. But at the same time, it's like, dad, gum, talking to the God of the universe like this is just crazy. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant, which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And I, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. God cared for these people. There was an apathy that Jonah had, but at the same time, it could have been, as we stated earlier, he understood Assyria was going to be the method of judgment God would use on his own people. And as it stated, he said, look, I, I said this at the beginning, I knew you're merciful, you're slow to anger. He was afraid that God was that these people were going to repent and God was going to be merciful on them. So for us as believers, what is our Nineveh? What is my Nineveh? What is your Nineveh? Are we running from God in any area? Is it getting to a point where God is actually using the non-believers to speak to us, to say, hey, they're getting it. They're grinding it out. They're driving after their goals. What about you? Are you grinding and running after mine? Who are you apathetic towards? Do we have blessings from God that we don't deserve? Does God take things from you? Or is he in the process of taking things from you that maybe would limit your perspective to see the bigger plan that he has? Are you going through a storm right now where he's trying to get your attention? Or are you metaphorically in Sheol, in the pit? Walter Martin used to say, God will put you on your back. So you have to look up. But the beauty of that is as many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens. The discipline of God is to try to get us back onto the path that he has for us. Because just like Jonah, each one of us has a Nineveh that we are called to. Each one of us has a mission and a purpose that God has laid out for us. We talked about it last week, a stewardship. You know, Jonah was angry about a plant, but he cared very little for an entire people group who were far from God. These things were written for our learning and our instruction. So my encouragement this week is to go through this book, read it every day and ask God to reveal to you, what is it you would have me do? Where would you have me go? One of the most incredible prayers I ever heard was that of David Livingston of Africa. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden upon me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the ties that bind me to your heart and to your service. He went to Africa. And in his journal, he said, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is burned within my heart. His wife couldn't stay. She couldn't deal with the sicknesses, the diseases. She couldn't build up the immunity. So she went back to their land, to their original country and raised money. I believe it was about five years they didn't see each other. And when he finally saw her, his one shoulder was destroyed from a lion attack. I believe one of his eyes had been put out on a night trek. They traveled their country talking about all the things that God was doing in Africa. It obviously had cost him dearly, but he understood the cost, right? That was his prayer. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden upon me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the ties that bind me to your heart and to your service. After they traveled for a while, his wife looked at him and said, or his wife, he turned to his wife. He said, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burned within my heart. She said, okay, I'll go with you. And he buried her shortly thereafter 
when they got there. And he dedicated the rest of his life, the entirety of his life, to the day he died, he was traveling village to village, preaching the gospel and ministering to those people. Maybe you are called to a people group here in the States. Maybe you are called to a people group overseas. I think at this point, what is really important is that we get on mission and we just be ready to go. And then we start making plans and doing it. Because one of the things that is a continuous lesson seen throughout the scriptures, throughout the book, this book of Jonah, what God truly cares about is obedience. Thank you guys for joining me this Friday. I greatly appreciate it. You guys mean a lot to me. You're in my prayers. If you have questions, if you have prayer requests, please reach out to me, paul at thewarriorsrising.com. We will be having the men's event. It'll be the March 15th through the 17th. I'm going to get that page up. We're still working on that. We're having some issues with the website. So I will get that sign up sheet and we will have costs up there for you because that way we can uh, provide the food. But thank you all for joining me today. I love you all. Go out, preach the gospel, disciple the nations. Remember that everything, everything we do is in support of that mission statement. This is Paul with Warriors Rising. Out. Out. 